Good morning, gentlemen. Well, I learned a long time ago, it's a good, it's a good thing to be out of town on your birthday. I just didn't get out early enough today. Uh, especially when you have a birthday that ends with a zero. People are just bound to do bad things to you. Uh, but thank you for singing happy birthday. It's been a good 64 years as far as I know. Uh, my mother is still living at 95, so I couldn't have mistreated her too badly. Uh, we are studying in 2 Samuel. We did not finish chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5. We were looking at how God keeps His promises to us, how we look to Him in prayer, and how He builds His kingdom through that. He builds His kingdom on His promises, and He builds His kingdom with men who seek Him in prayer. And so let's turn back to chapter 5 and finish up the story. We had seen that uh, God hears our prayers and guides us. God keeps His promises through the afflictions from disobedient believers like northern Israel, people in the church, through afflictions from allies, people who are actually trying to help us, hurt us. And now we want to look at how God keeps His promises to us through afflictions from unbelievers, people who are posing us from the outside. In order to do that, let's turn to verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shammuah, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Okay, uh, he keeps his promises to us through afflictions from unbelievers, verses 6 through 25, uh, <clears throat> including, first of all, those who would displace us. And there I'm speaking of the Jebusites, from verse 6 to verse 16, those who would displace us. The Jebusites have been living in what we now call Jerusalem for centuries. That was their home. But they, God had called it His home. The Jebusites were still occupying it. And so it is today. God has told us to make disciples of all nations. And you say, well, the nations, it's just it's overwhelming how many unbelievers we have out there. Uh, some of you, um, you know, may, may use the uh, 
Operation World prayer guide so that you, every day you get on email a nation to pray for. And I do that. And uh, to start off the year, we were praying for continents and the issues that are in continents. And I uh, remember when we were praying for Asia just a few days ago, uh, you know, we always get the percentage of evangelicals that are in the given area we're praying for. And in Asia, <clears throat> the percentage of evangelicals is like 3.5%. So you got billions of people, literally, and you got 3.5 for every 100. You're saying, really, Lord? Uh, and you're saying, yes, I want you to take the land. And uh, we pray for Europe, the continent of Europe. 2.5% uh, genuine believers in, in Europe. You say, really, Lord? Yes. Pray for the land. And here, uh, David's looking at Jerusalem. It's fortified. The reason it hasn't been taken yet, it's strongly fortified. When Israel invaded the land, they never took Jebus. They never took the Jebusites because it was so strongly held. In fact, so much so that even to get their water, they had a very tricky way of doing it. Of course, they were fortified up on the hill, and they had a tunnel that went down through the hill, and they could go out by the, the, the spring and get their water and come back up the tunnel. And nobody even knew the tunnel was there. So they could be completely self-sufficient inside that fort. And David now knows it's his job to take that fort. He's been made king, uh, and he's eventually got to take it. So we can trust the Lord to uh, work through our afflictions from unbelievers, even when they're possessing the land in some ways, even when they have own all the media or when they are in political office in some way or another, or when they're in charge of your business, uh, or, or whatever it is. Uh, they look like they're in charge, and the Lord is going to work through you even in the midst of those afflictions, even when others would displace you. So notice 6A, the occupation of power centers. That's what we're talking about. The Jebusites were in the center of Jerusalem. They occupied the power centers. And notice in 6B, they have contempt for God and His people. And sometimes those who are in the power centers, they just make fun of real believers. Uh, they, they said to David, you're not going to come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. Basically, the Jebusites were saying, we'll put our blind people and our lame people out there to fight you, and that'll be plenty. So they're just making fun of you. You have nothing to offer. Who do you think you are? Look at us. We're in control. That's what you're dealing with. God's promises will see you right through that. Let's look at the answers. In verses 7 through 10, there's an empowerment of his people. We are told David became greater and greater for why? The Lord of hosts is with him. God is with you. That's what Psalm 46 is all about. We will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Uh, God is our refuge and strength. He, he is our ever-present help. And God is with David. He had told David he would be with him. That's the first thing. He empowers us. Secondly, verses 11 and 12, he uh, will establish his kingdom. So he answers through the empowerment of his people and the establishment of his kingdom. Look at this great phrase in verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. He, David knew that God had established him king over Israel. Francis Schaeffer says there are three types of people. There are men who build their own kingdom. There are men who build God's kingdom, and there are men through whom God builds His kingdom. There's a difference. And here you see it. David knew that God was building and establishing His kingdom through Him. You know that about yourself. You're the Lord's servant. Therefore, He is building His kingdom through you. He's doing the work through you. You're cooperating with Him. He's the commander of the Lord of hosts and He is with you and working through you. That was David's mentality. But look at the second part of that sentence. And that He had exalted His kingdom for the sake of His people Israel. So there are two important things David knew here. David knew that it was God who was at work building the kingdom through him. And secondly, he knew that the kingdom was being built for the sake of God's people. So if you're in a position of leadership of any kind and you're a believer, you realize it's God who's thrusting you forward in whatever position of influence or authority or leadership that you have, and He's putting you there for the sake of other people. So if you've got graduate degrees and you have 
distinctive honors or you, you've got a lot of money or you've got a high position or you've got people you manage. The reason you're there is for their benefit. And, of course, the world's viewpoint is exactly the opposite. I've worked hard to get where I am, so finally I'm going to enjoy the accoutrements of my glory. And the Lord's servant is just the opposite. I've been given this role in order to be a servant to other people. Let us not forget it. This was David's comment, very well chosen. Now, notice thirdly, verses 13 through 16, the forgiveness of our folly. God continues to carry out His purposes by His promises, even when we commit sins and do stupid things. And David took more concubines and wives. And here you have it, fulfilling exactly what Moses said in Deuteronomy 17 was going to happen when they chose human kings, that they were going to take wives and concubines and end up taking up all their resources. And here you find even the great David doing it. Now, of course, we know it was the habit of kings to have a harem, not just for their sexual pleasure, but so that they could have many children and build a dynasty. And the safest people around you are those who are family. They're the most likely to protect you. So if you're head of a dynasty, you've got to have plenty of wives so that you can have even more children than one wife can have. But hey, one woman can have a lot of wives, especially in those days. You can end up with a dozen or 15 children if you were faithful to one wife. But David chose to go the way of all Mid-Eastern kings, build a harem, and begin to have children through them. And you know what? God forgives his folly, forgives yours too. You and I have done some stupid, sinful things. We violated the law of God. Does that mean that we've surrendered all possibility that He's going to work through us or that He's going to bless us? No, you're dealing with a gracious God. We'll see in the next chapter, you're also dealing with a holy God. But He is a holy and a gracious God. And He takes broken men like us, puts us back to work, even with our folly. That's exactly what He does with David, or David wouldn't be there, I assure you. Uh, Then notice, not only does He work through unbelievers who would displace us. But secondly, verses 17 through 25, he works uh, with us uh, through the afflictions of those who would destroy us. And the Philistines are, of course, the classic case of opponents who would want to destroy you. And whether you are aware of it or not this morning, you have opponents who want to destroy you. They're called demons. They really are truly out to get you if you're a believer or if you're a human being. They're out to get you. Uh, Here are the afflictions. First of all, they're murderous. In verse 17, we read the Philistines went up to search for David. Do you think they were searching for him so they could just have a nice conversation with him, go out to tea? Do you think they were searching for him because they wanted to give him a gift because he's such a wonderful king? No, they're searching for him to destroy him. Notice in verse 22, the Philistines, Philistines came up yet again. Do you see the language? Uh, We're being told here that they're doing it again. They're relentless. They keep coming back. Those Philistines just seem never to fade away. You have opponents that never let up. It's relentless. Here's God's answer. Look in verses 17 following through through verse 25. First of all, the Lord burst through. That's the language. Burst through our enemies. This, This word burst through is the Hebrew perez and it's the consonants are PRZ. And you find those four times, literally, in verse 20 alone. And so the author is making a point here. David came to Bel-Perazim, and David broke through there, and the Lord burst through my enemies like a bursting flood. And therefore the name of that place is called Bel-Perazim. You see the usage of that word. God is bursting through. So it doesn't matter how powerful your enemy is. It doesn't matter how many of them there are. It doesn't matter how malevolent their intent. God in His power is going to burst through your enemies to protect you and to give you a victory. That's exactly the way the Lord is working on behalf of His people. Now, in any given moment, you may be inclined to say, Lord, where are you? I'm being overwhelmed. Well, we're going to see that sometimes even His children lose some individual battles. But we do not lose the war. And you'll see that at the end of the day when you get home. The Lord burst through our enemies. Um, And Baal Perazim means the Lord of burstings out. Now, verses 23 through 25, you'll see that the Lord goes out. It's another phrase that is being emphasized in the text to defeat our enemies. 
for then the Lord has gone out before you. God is a mighty warrior. And you find this uh, throughout the scriptures that God arms himself uh, on our account. For example, you can look in Psalm uh, 24, uh, verse 8, and you get an example of this where David says, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. So your God is a warrior. He clothes himself with might, and he goes out to battle on your behalf. Now, that is what David learned as he was submitting himself to lead Israel for the establishment of the kingdom. Notice what David is doing. He's, Saul has now died. Jonathan has died. The dynasty has faded. David is now king of Judah. He is consolidating the kingship of God over all of Israel. And he is taking the Jebusites and defending the city of Jerusalem against all comers. He is establishing the kingdom of God. That's what's on his heart. Gentlemen, most of us spend our lives trying to establish our kingdoms, trying to build our estates, trying to leave our legacy or our reputation. Look what David's trying to do. He's trying to do what the Lord had given him to do in fulfilling the Great Commission, the agenda of God, establishing God's kingdom. So David is establishing Jerusalem, Zion, the holy hill of God, for the glory of God. That was his life's ambition. That's the reason he's a man after God's own heart. What's your ambition? What are you really trying to accomplish? Here you see it. David, now his time had come, and he is following the Lord. And you'll notice in the latter part of chapter 5, twice we get again the phrase, David inquired of the Lord. Did you see it in uh, verse 19 and in verse 23, David inquired of the Lord. He continues to seek the Lord. Lord, what would you have? Not only in taking the city of Jerusalem, he inquires of the Lord about fighting the Philistines. And the Lord shows him exactly how to do it. In one case, it's a frontal attack. In another case, they go behind the enemy and get them from behind. He's listening to the Lord. He's seeking to establish God's name among his people, and he's seeking to do it God's way. That is what we are all about. Now, let's turn to chapter 6, and we'll see that David's ambitions continue. And really here, we're going to see the heart of his ambition. He's established Jerusalem. He's dealt with a few of his enemies. He's consolidating the kingdom of God under his, his leadership. But he still has yet some business to do to glorify God. And you're going to see that it has to do with bringing the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim, or what's called Baal Judah here, down to the capital, or up to the capital, of the, the city of David. To bring the presence of God, the very sacrament of the presence of God, to bring it into the capital city. This is David's great ambition, and it has to do with worship. Let's read chapter 6 and see what happens here. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth. You see that phrase again? God had burst forth against the Philistines. Now what's he doing? He's bursting forth against his own people. And David is amazed and he's angry about it. The Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. He's a priest. 
And that place is called Perez Uzzah. Not Baal Perazim as before the Philistines, but now Perez Uzzah, that is bursting out against Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Okay, I want us to notice in these first two verses of chapter 6 that our worship defines us. Our worship defines us. What is it about this box that's three and three quarters feet wide, two and a quarter feet high, and two and a quarter feet deep? There's the box, about as wide as this desk and probably as high as that desk and as deep. There it is. What's so special about that? Because the people of Israel have been told, your God reigns over the cherubim. This is His footstool. It's the very sacrament of His presence. It's the sign of His royal kingship over Israel. He puts His feet on this. This is His footstool. This golden box with the cherubim on it. So to have the Ark of the Covenant with you was to have the very sacrament of God's presence with you. And God promised to attend them in a very powerful way through the Ark of the Covenant. So David, more than anything else, in the city of Jerusalem, he wanted the Lord's presence with him, with his influence and his reign, and with all of the people he was seeking to serve. For one thing, if David's a servant of the Lord, he knows that he does not have the resources it takes to give the people what they need. He must have God Himself to be there to resource the people to meet the needs that they have. And if you're leading in God's name, if you're teaching a Sunday school or leading a small group, you know that it's going to take God to work in those people's hearts. You've got to have His presence. If you don't have His presence, you are wasting your time. It's just blah, 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 blah. Nothing's going to land. Nothing's going to make a difference. Nothing's going to influence people. But if God is there, then he's being honored and the people are truly being helped. And those are your two goals, worshiping God 
and serving the people. And God's presence is necessary for that. So David knew that. And we'll find here in this text, we've already read it, and we find elsewhere in David's life, the joy and delight of his life was worshiping God. David was a magnificent artist. He was a poet and a musician. He's quite talented. You can tell from the Psalms that he wrote. And he takes this tremendous fine arts skill that God has given him, and he deploys it into worship. He uses all of his gifts in worship. He fights the battle so that he can establish the worship center where God's presence will dwell. That's where his real heart is. And it's where our hearts are. We're all worshiping something or someone. And that's what defines us because the Psalms say you will become like what you're worshiping. So if you're worshiping God, you will increasingly be conformed into His likeness. If you're worshiping money, you'll start to look like it. It will be your master. And it's a horrible master. Money's a good slave, terrible master. And it will rule over you and destroy your life. And you will begin to be just simply a greedy man, increasingly, if that's your God. Whatever your God is, it will eventually destroy you unless it's the living God who is gracious. David's chief concern was worship, and that's what was establishing him. As I mentioned here from John Calvin, the first foundation of righteousness undoubtedly is the worship of God. David was insisting that God's presence must be the central focus of his kingdom. How about your kingdom? Is that the central focus? Worship is the most important thing in your life, your personal life, your family life, and your church life. And uh, there's no doubt in my mind that what we're taught in the Bible is that this is number one. I've listed several texts here. You can look, for example, in Exodus. What do you find in Exodus? Worship everywhere. The Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are about worshiping God. Think about it. So out of the Ten Commandments, we're first commanded how to approach God, how to devote ourselves to His worship. Look at the rest of Exodus, what's being done there. The people are being delivered from slavery. Why? So, says God, that they may worship me. And He takes them out into the wilderness to constitute them at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai to give them His commandments that they may worship Him. And, of course, what do they do? They build a golden calf. And they have to be disciplined for it. They have to learn that the main reason for their existence, the main reason for the church's existence, is to worship God. And then what else happens in Exodus? God gives them extensive instructions for how to construct a tabernacle. And so they build the tabernacle. It takes chapter after chapter to describe this. What happens at the end of Exodus? The Holy Spirit fills the tabernacle, and God takes up residence among the people, and He is praised. What about the book of Psalms? Right in the middle of your Bible. 150 Psalms. Why? Because the people of God are meant to be a singing, rejoicing, poetic, artful people in the way that we worship God. Right there in the middle of your Bible is a songbook. That was Israel's songbook. God is saying, Make a joyful noise in the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Right. And so some of you think singing is optional. Singing is for people with good voices. Singing is for people who can carry a tune in a bucket. No, singing is for God's people, even those who can't carry a tune in a bucket. Now, you can keep it down a little bit if you want to, but you sing out. You make a joyful noise. That's all that's required of you is a joyful noise. Make it until people turn around and look at you like this when you're singing in church. That's when you really know you're getting it out there. When your lousy voice is actually disturbing somebody, now you're good. Good to go. Men need to be trained to sing from the earliest days. Your sons and daughters need to be trained to sing. That's the reason we in many churches have children's choirs. It's not because we think they're so cute and want them to sing on a Sunday morning. No, we want to train them to be Christians. This is what Christians do. When you get converted, you become a chorister. It's automatic. When you're converted, you become a chorister. And it's disturbing to me to go in traditional churches in America and to go in contemporary churches in America. And in both cases, those people are sitting back in their pews waiting to be entertained. 
In the traditional churches, they want the choir to do some fantastic anthem, and they can go and go, well, boy, that was beautiful. I'm glad those people can sing. And in the contemporary churches, they turn up the volume of their band and get the drums going until your, your rib cage is rattling. But nobody's singing except the people on the PA system. Go to a contemporary service when the power goes out and see what it sounds like in there. Nobody's singing. So in the traditional churches and in contemporary churches, people are waiting to be entertained. David wasn't waiting to be entertained by other people. David was entertaining God. And that was his whole point for being on the face of the earth, was to dance and sing before the Lord, to invite God's presence in the middle of his life, in the middle of his reign, in the middle of all the people he was influencing, and then to burst forth with celebration. And that's the goal of life. And if you don't like it, you're probably not going to like heaven very much because guess what we're going to be doing there? So right now we're cultivating, developing our palates for enjoying eternal life. Let's get with it. That's our main raison d'etre. The main reason for being is to be a worshiper. Our worship defines us. What do you really glorify? What do you really magnify? What do you enjoy extolling and talking about? It's got to be Him. This was David's heart. Now, notice that we've got a problem with false worship. When you get to verses 3 through 11, there's some false worship being offered. False worship provokes God's holy wrath. You say, how did David do that? Well, David's men didn't do what David's men were supposed to do. Abinadab is a priest. Abinadab has access to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and probably Joshua. He's got all that he needs to know how to do his job. And in those books, we've seen in past studies and amen that when you're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, that's exactly what you do. You carry it. It's specifically built with little uh, loops on, on the box, and poles go through it, and you put a covering over it because you're not even to look at the ark, and the priests are supposed to carry it on their shoulders. Who said you put it on a cart? Where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you exactly where it came from. It came from the Philistines. That's what they did when they stole the ark, remember? And then when they returned it, they put it on an ark, and all hell broke loose because God was unhappy with that. And even when they looked on the ark, all hell broke loose. They had forgotten that God is not only your friend, and God is gracious, but God is powerful and He's holy. He is other than we. He's not only separate from us in state of being, He is separate in His holiness. And we must not become overly familiar in the sense of being presumptuous with Him. He is God. And David had allowed his men to do it their own way. Oh, we've got some contemporary worship we want to do. You know, it's not like the old people did. Well, they were going to change the rules a little bit. We want to do it the way that, you know, it's relevant to our people today. You know, we got these things called carts. we got some pretty fancy models, you know, a Chevrolet and a Ford and a Chrysler. And we're going to get the nicest cart around, and uh, this will be a fabulous worship service. People will just be awed. Did you see the Super Bowl halftime the other day, which came in on a tiger? You know, man, everybody was awed at that. We're, we're going to try something like that in worship. The Lord says, no, you're not. I told you how. My Ark of the Covenant is to be carried. And there's a reason for it. And you'll do it my way. And they didn't. And so they're going along the way. And Uzzah, who's walking next to the Ark to be sure and take care of the Ark. And the Ark is on a cart. And the ox goes over a pothole. And the Ark's starting to wobble and fall off. And Uzzah just does what any of us would do. He puts his hand up to stabilize it. And as soon as he does, he's out. He's gone. He may, there may be a few twitches right there, but after a few twitches, he's out. He's not just out. He didn't just go unconscious. He's dead right there at Nacon. Everybody knew exactly where that place was, right in front of Nacon's house, right there. He died because he touched the ark. Gentlemen, we have to remember that God is a holy God, and th there are certain ways in which he wants to be approached because those ways honor him. They reflect not only our creaturely status, but we approach Him in ways that reflect our fallen creaturely status. 
And because we are fallen, you don't just approach the ark without buckets of blood and sacrifice. And you certainly don't go touching the ark and acting familiar with it and being presumptuous with, with Him, with God. And we do that too sometimes. We think we can just burst into God's presence with no mediator, who needs Jesus, with no blood shed for us, who needs atonement. So we don't go in Jesus' name. We think that generic God would just be happy to have any of us tip our hat to Him on occasion. Surely He'd be honored with that. No. The only way you're going to approach God is through Jesus Christ, through the mediation of His blood, the merit of His blood, the mediation of His intercession, and with humility and reverence. That's the way you're going to approach God and know Him. And David, even David, who had a very high view of God, had to learn that God is holier than he thought he was. Now you'll notice that when this happens, uh, David is, first of all, angry. He's thinking, God, I'm trying to build a sanctuary for you. I'm trying to get church going here in Jerusalem, the city I just took. I'm trying to build the cathedral. I'm trying to get this thing going right. I've deployed all these people, brought them out here for this parade, and what did you do? You stopped it with a funeral. And I'm ticked off. You've ruined the parade. You've ruined your own reputation. What's this all about? And David really goes into pouting. And he's afraid. We're told that he's angry, and he's afraid. You ever been that way with God? God, I was trying to do this for you, and look at, look at what you did. I went bankrupt. You know, my wife doesn't love me anymore. My child did this, and we start, what are you doing, God? We get angry at him and say, what is the use? Why should I even bother? And I know that probably everyone in this room, at one time or another, has had those kinds of feelings. David had them too. Why? Here's why. Because you expect God to cooperate with you. You're the king. You're trying to establish his kingdom, yeah. Well, it's true, you're getting a little bit of prestige out of this yourself, but, oh, well, that's not, that's just a minor matter. The real thing is I'm really trying to exalt God. And then the first time God shows himself to, to contradict your ideas or to discipline you, you want to hang up the whole thing. Because you thought the only way this is going to work is if God cooperates with every idea you've got. God's in charge. And he takes his, his chief leaders. The only way you become a spiritual leader and influencer is when you are being disciplined by the Lord quite regularly. And we'll find it in David's life. He's quite regularly disciplined by the Lord. There's no other way for a sinner to be a leader than to be disciplined by the Lord quite regularly. So David is. And uh, he has to learn something very important. He has to learn what Moses taught Aaron. I've mentioned the text here, Leviticus 10. Remember when Nadab and Abihu took unauthorized fire into the altar and the fire consumed them and killed them, both sons of Aaron? And Moses just simply reminded Aaron that God is holy. And you can't just approach Him any way you want to. We have to take fire into the altar the way God told us to take fire in the altar. You take unauthorized fire, He strikes back. And one reason the church, I think, in, in our own nation is quite uh, moribund is because we think that we can worship God any way we want to. We're thinking about worshiping God in ways that will entertain us and draw a big crowd. Those are the rules of the road right now. You're supposed to have worship services that entertain you and draw a big crowd. I think somebody forgot what worship is all about. It's not entertaining you, and it's not drawing a big crowd. It is pleasing Him. You say, how do I find that out? Same place these priests should have found it out. Should have gone to the Bible and taken seriously what was given them. What does the Bible say about worship? What does God really want? You search it out and see what would please Him, and you seek to do that. That's what David had to learn, that he can't just do it any old way. Now, look, secondly, in verses 12 through 19, that true worship conforms to God's Word. So eventually, David realizes that the problem is not that God is, is impossible to deal with, that God is being petulant. No, the problem is David needs to repent. And here's how it starts. He notices that God is blessing the household of Obed-Edom. And so I mentioned here there's an apprehension of God's mercy. Worship begins 
with an apprehension of God's mercy. You can't behold His holiness unless you know He's merciful. The reason is, His holiness will kill you. And if you don't know that He's also merciful, you're not going to get close to His holiness. It's too bright. It's too destructive. His holiness wipes out sin. So that means you're going to get wiped out unless He's merciful also. That's the reason for all the blood. He pours out His wrath on animals. And ultimately, He pours out His wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ, His own Son. Therefore, you can come into His holy presence. But you must apprehend His mercy. And David does that. And that's the reason that, the song, that David says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. He says, Give thanks to Him, for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. His mercy is everlasting. He is good. He is merciful. David beholds it when he sees that Obed-Edom's household is being blessed with the presence of the ark. And he's, he's discerning, oh, okay, God is maybe, maybe safe is not the right word, but God is approachable when we approach in His way. And God wants to bless. Look what He's doing to Obed-Edom's house. God really does want to bless. And as David gets away and begins to recover and begins to repent, he understands, yes, there is a fear of God, but not a slavish fear. It's a fear of a son who knows he's loved as a son, but he also fears and respects his father in heaven. Oh, that's the way it is. So that turns David's eyes back toward the ark. And so David leads the ark out of Obed-Edom's house to Zion. And you'll notice in verse 13, it says, when those who bore the ark of the Lord. Okay, we got the point. No carts. Let's carry that ark the way God told us to. Let's worship the way He instructed. And now they're bearing the ark the way they were supposed to. And David also sacrifices an animal before they had completed six steps. Six steps. David says, stop. Let's offer sacrifices before the ark of the Lord. We're in the presence of a holy God. Let's offer sacrifices before Him. And some scholars think what is meant here is every six steps they stopped and offered a sacrifice to the Lord. It's amazing. Lots of blood everywhere. Why? Because we understand the holiness of God. And His wrath breaks out against sin, especially human sin. And there must be a substitute. There's no way to get to God without a, substitute, a substitutionary atonement. Blood being shed in your place because the wrath of God must be exercised in justice against all sin. So there were gifts everywhere, sacrificial gifts, verse 13. Now the act of worship is, by its very nature, sacrifice. And you'll find in the Old Testament that probably the best definition of worship is just sacrifice. That we sacrifice what God had given us, animals, uh, wave offerings with grain, all kinds of sacrifice we bring to the Lord. We still speak of worship in the New Testament with the word sacrifice. And in particular, there are three places in the New Testament where you see this concept of sacrifice in worship. Think, for example, with Hebrews 13, 15, where the writer of Hebrews says that we're to offer to God our praise, the sacrifice of praise, praise from our lips. That's a sacrifice. So we were talking about singing a moment ago. When we sing, we're offering something tangible to the Lord. Remember, when you go to worship, the point is not what you're getting out of worship. The point is, what are you giving to the Lord in worship? What is He getting out of it? So you go not with just empty hands, empty mind, empty heart. You're going with something in your mind and heart and often in your hands to give to Him. And in your mind and heart, there is to be a song. And often, most of our churches, we go and we're given the song that we can sing. It's been prepared for us, so we're ready to offer it to the Lord. So when you join in a song, you're making a sacrifice to the Lord. That's the first way in which we think of sacrifice in New Testament worship. Secondly, in Philippians 4, Paul the missionary says to his missionary sending church in Philippi, while Paul's in Roman prison, thank you for the support you've sent to me. It is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. So that when we give our tithes and offerings, even today, that's a tangible sacrifice 
to the Lord. It's something we give to Him. That's the reason that we want to go to church and give because it's an, a, it's an act of worship. That's the reason we collect offerings in church services because it's an act of adoring the Lord, giving Him His due, giving Him tribute as King. The third usage of sacrifice in the New Testament is Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So ultimately, the reason for a responsive hymn after the sermon is that we can all offer ourselves to the Lord, we can submit ourselves to His Word as an act of worship. The main reason for a sermon in a worship service is to elicit worship right then and there. You may remember the sermon the next day or the next week. That's wonderful. If it was well outlined or the text was well expounded, you might remember it even for a lifetime. There are a few sermons I still haven't forgotten that I've heard preached that left an indelible mark upon me. But the main purpose of the sermon is right then and there for God to get the worship that is His due. So the preacher who knows what he's doing in a worship service, his main objective is to elicit praise from the house of God for the living God in the moment. That's the reason for the hymn that follows. That's the reason that occasionally even a Presbyterian will say something like, Amen, during the sermon. Every once in a while, if he has a Baptist background. Why? Because we're responding to the Lord. Right then and there we're worshiping Him. So we go to worship services because we want to offer something to the Lord on a weekly basis and we want to do it with the people. Notice David's doing it with the people. Now in both cases, David is singing and shouting and dancing and praising the Lord when false worship was being offered and when true worship was being offered. So enthusiasm is not everything, but it is important. You can be enthusiastic and be offering false worship. What we want to do is be enthusiastic and offer true worship, which is what David's doing right here. So sacrificial gifts, and that leads to verses 14 through 17, enthusiastic participation. So here now we have true worship. Well, David's not going to be less enthusiastic when he's offering true worship than when he was offering false worship. Now he dances with all his might. David, remember, was an expert in the fine arts. If he was a good poet and a good singer, I'll guarantee you he was a great dancer. I don't know what kind of dancing it was. Uh, you know, in the Middle East, you'd have all kinds of versions of this. But probably the Western analogy would be ballet. I mean, this was something that was skillful. I imagine David, not only with all of his might, but with all of his mind, with all of his artistic skill, he probably prepared this dance carefully for weeks and weeks and weeks and rehearsed exactly what he was going to do. Now, it may have been completely extemporaneous, and I'm sure there were some extemporaneous components to it, but David was skillful. He was a very strong athlete, and he was also a very fine artist. And I can only imagine what this dance must have been like. <clears throat> but one thing I know, it was, all, it was with all of his might. He was all over the place. He was excited. And sometimes, you know, these... Can I speak about you Presbyterians again? We come to church with this potato head, you know, approach that, you know, I dare you to entertain me. I dare you to elicit anything out of me. I'm a cool dude. You know, I don't, I don't just give my excitement away to anything. You know, and I'm, I'm a business person. I'm shrewd. Mm -hmm, I get that point in the sermon. Let me think about that one. Look what David's doing. Yay, yay, look at the Lord. He's excited about God. What happens to you Presbyterians? You know what? You wouldn't have fit in this processional very well, this parade. You'd have felt like, what's going on here? I'm, I'm not excited. No, you're not excited. Why? Because David's excited about the king. You're going to church thinking about what you're wearing, what everybody else is wearing, and what person you're going to hire, all this kind of stuff, and about you know, adjusting your golf grip for heaven's sake. You're thinking all kinds of stuff. David's got his mind on the Lord. He's very excited about it. You say, well, how do I do that? You have to train your mind. And your mind is trained by your disposition, your heart. You cultivate a worshipful heart, which then cultivates a worshipful mind. And so you develop the skills that have to do with being the best worshiper you can be. So that means being the best giver you can be, being the best singer that you can be, and being the best repenter that you can be. And you come to church prepared to offer that. And that is the highlight of your week corporately with God's people. And you get your life regulated on those worship services. Those worship services are stakes in the ground for you and for your week. 
And if the whole week stunk up to the high heavens and you lost a million dollars last week, you come to worship on the Lord's Day. You know, we had a funeral here just last week. And the very next day, that family was lined up without their mother because she had just died. And they were lined up like a family right there in their pew, worshiping the living God. We will rejoice, even in the midst of the death and grief of losing a loved one. So you, you put that stake in the ground. That's going to be the center of your life. That's the most important reason you're here. And you put your resources into it to become the best worshiper you can become. You become quite athletic about it, which is what David's doing here. He's quite athletic about his singing, about his dancing, about his worshiping the Lord. Now, you'll notice there was one here who didn't think it was too cool. Her name was Michael. And let's move on to the last point. Uh, well, next last point, mutual blessing. You'll notice that David blesses the people. So you come to worship God, but in the midst of it, you're blessing everybody around you. And David gives a cake of raisins to everybody. Nobody's going home empty-handed. Everybody's going to be made joyful. The Lord is bountiful. And here are signs of His bounty. And nobody in the house of God is poor that day. And if you look in Acts chapter 2, the New Testament church got it. Now lastly, true worship disregards human disapproval. She says, boy, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, taking off your royal robes and putting on that simple priestly gown, a linen ephod, looking like a naked man out there, like you're half drunk, like these people off the street, and there was nothing different between you and a beggar on the street when you're out there. I'm embarrassed to be your wife. That's basically what she was saying. And David says, you're going to get more embarrassed before this is over. Because you had not seen a half of it yet. I've only begun my worship, honey. And if you knew what was good for you, you'd remember you came from Saul's house, and now you're under the protection of David's dynasty. And how do you think we got here? Because we're worshiping the Lord. So he led his house even when he was being despised. And he says, you know what? The poor people will hold me in honor because they'll understand what I'm doing. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I didn't come to the house of God today to impress people. He says, I'm before the Lord. I'm here to honor Him. And David had to remind his own family of the necessity of worship. And so it is with every Christian leader. We remind everybody under us, I'm not only going to go and dance and shout, but you, my kids, you're going with me. And honey, my wife, I wish you would go too, if you will. We influence everybody around us. It's part of our worship. God is so great. It's, our one voice is not enough. We have to get other voices. We start with our own family, and we get them there to praise His name. This is the heart of the King, and this is the heart of the kingdom. This is what it's all about establishing the glory of God on the face of the earth. What ambition in life could be greater than that? That's the reason for the Great Commission, to raise up worshipers in every nation, language, tongue of people around the world so that from every square inch of this terrain, the Lord's name is to be praised. That's the ambition of a man after God's own heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us as a holy God and a gracious God, eliciting from us eternal praise. We would give it to you here on the earth just as we'll give it to you one day in the new heavens and the new earth. Please send us out with your blessing so that your bounty is evidenced in all of our lives and help us to be those through whom you would build your kingdom even today in our workplace, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.